morning, everyone. I want to say congratulations to NIAC grads and ATS grads this morning. <clears throat> I'm just glad I got all my grading done myself. <laughs> We've been doing a, a series together uh, on the book of Hebrews, but we're, we're focusing on one question throughout this book. There, it's a very complex book. There's lots of themes in it, but there's this one question that uh, I believe the writer answers throughout the book, and it's this. If God loves us so much, why is life so hard? Or why is it so hard to be a Christian? You see, the, the circumstances of the people that he's writing to, or they were, they were urban Christians. They were in a pluralistic society where their faith was a minority, and their faith was, in many ways, uh, marginalized, or they were marginalized for their faith, and often even imprisoned. And that probably prior to the writing of this book, there had been a, a, a season of persecution, a series of imprisonments. And there were numerous people who were in the church who went back to their old faith. And now that the season of persecution is over, it seems that they're coming back to the church. And there are those who had been faithful, who had gone through some pretty serious persecution. And now they're all back together in the church. And it's a, it's a tense and it's a complicated situation. And so the writer in answering this question, why is it so hard to be a Christian, is basically giving them in every chapter the same answer. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And in different ways and in different facets of Jesus' character and his ministry, he points out how utterly and completely trustworthy Jesus is. So we want to read one of those themes. It's the theme of Jesus, our high priest. It's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Will you read this out loud with me? Uh, it's on your bulletin. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God. <clears throat> Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. <clears throat> One of the motifs or a, 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 a reoccurring scenario throughout the scripture is, is the circumstance of being in the wilderness. Uh, the wilderness is pretty much what Adam and Eve were cast into when they were thrown out of the garden. Abraham had to travel, in a sense, through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews talks a lot about how the children of Israel, in being released from slavery, had to cross the wilderness 
to find their way home. And it's this concept of wilderness that in many ways you, you look at and you need to see clearly that no one can sustain their life in the wilderness. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. There's not enough shelter. And so the wilderness, in many ways, becomes really a, an, an analogy to living your life as a Christian in this world. This is not your home. This is your wilderness. And what happens to many of us is we come to believe that if we have enough food, if we have enough clothing, if we had a good enough job, if we have the family, if we have success, if we have the promotion, somehow we're going to be able to sustain ourselves in this wilderness. And yet all of these things, even as comforting or even as luxurious they might be, they will not satisfy the deepest, greatest needs of your life. Nothing temporary can ultimately sustain you. It will ultimately disappoint you. If you make anything in this world ultimate, even as good as it may be, as good as family is, as good as a marriage might be, as good as friendship might be, it is only pointing to the ultimate. It itself cannot be the ultimate. It's an interesting thing also, not only... Is there this, this idea of the wilderness and our journey in the wilderness of this life as we're being led home? There's also a, a difference in a way of how God seems to manifest in the wilderness. If you remember in the last days of, of uh, slavery in Egypt, God was performing miracles every single day. Every single day there was some kind of intervention or interaction with God in a powerful, powerful way. And then once they got in the wilderness, it seemed like there were long periods of silence. Now, while they had the cloud that led them by day, the cloud didn't speak to them. And even the fire that led them at night didn't speak to them. And, and, and often the people would get very angry, they would, particularly when they were hungry or they were thirsty. And even once he satisfied their hunger, they go, do we have to have manna every day? Can't we have something else? You know, and then even though they had seen God provide water before, when they were thirsty, they forgot how he provided. And they began to, they began to complain. They began to grumble. And it was in that complaining and grumbling that even Moses lost his cool. And instead of speaking to the rock, when he was told to speak to the rock, he struck the rock. And though water came forth, Moses never got to enter the promised land. The wilderness is even a tough place sometimes because God seems quiet. Or God doesn't seem to be intervening as quickly or as often as I want him to. And so it's this whole motif in the, in the, the book of Hebrews of that you and I are people in the wilderness who are not yet home. That there's, there's some aspect, if, you, if you're a believer, there's some aspect that you will always have an ache. You will always have an unsettled feeling. You will always have a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so he speaks to these people in their wilderness and he says to them, 
There's only one who's ever gone through the wilderness and done it successfully. And so he tells them to turn their eyes on the only counselor who can counsel you in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's fascinating to me because what he, what he brings out in here is so true. And it's the idea that the, the, the inevitability in the wilderness of you becoming hard of heart or cold of spirit. That it becomes very easy in the wilderness because things don't go the way you want. Outcomes don't come out the way you want. It's really easy to begin to say, I will not want or become cynical, or to express cynicism. When you see someone else happy, you go, it won't be long. You're in the wilderness. You're going to lose that happiness. Or to use skepticism, that you just don't trust anything. You just don't trust anybody. And it becomes a way of not only hardening your heart, but protecting your heart by saying, I will not be disappointed again, even to get to the place of disillusionment. You see, just because you don't know what to want doesn't mean you you can ever live without desire. Generally, what's going on, even in your wilderness, is your, your good father is trying to, one, drive you to the only counselor who can counsel you. But also, he's trying to separate out the contradictory desires of your heart. Because whether you know it or not, we are incredibly self-protective. And we allow people inside our shields that we shouldn't allow. And we keep people outside of our shields that we actually should let in. But often because of mistrust and broken hearts, God is not inside but outside. And we use this kind of hardness, this coldness to say, I will not be hurt again. I mean, if you you allow, even now the Holy Spirit might bring up moments where you have made oaths, you have made promises to yourself. I will not need anybody. I won't get hurt again. I'll never let anyone do that to me again. These are all statements of hardness of heart. These are not tender statements. These are, I will not allow this statement. I will protect myself statement. The funny thing is that most of them are made when we're teenagers or when we're even preteens, where we know so much. <laughs> and yet, they stay in place until we die. Do not harden your hearts. Do not use these means of protection which will not protect you. Realize that in the wilderness... Jesus is calling you to a counseling session. Think about this. In verse 13 of chapter 3, he talks, the, the writer talks about this need in the wilderness for constant counseling. He uses this word, exhort one another every day, he says, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's interesting the idea exhort, it's the, same, it's the same word, it's the same concept that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming alongside the paraclete, the advocate, 
the counselor. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was prophesied as coming, one of his names was Wonderful Counselor. He gives help in the days of our trouble. He has comfort when you're sad. Now, it's interesting because he's the example of the counselor. Because Jesus could counsel with stern warnings, and yet he could also give tender invitations. It's a fascinating thing when you look at at just this, this one instance where he's dealing with his friends, Mary and Martha. And you remember the story that days before Lazarus dies, he gets word that Lazarus is sick. He does nothing. He waits. He waits till word comes Lazarus has died, and then he goes and visits the sisters. Now, watch the counseling strategy of Jesus in this experience. Martha comes up and gets in his face. If you had been here, can you imagine? You're the woman known as getting in Jesus' face twice. (laughs) She's fussed at him already. Now she's fussing again. (laughs) For eternity, that will be. (laughs) And people still name their kids Martha. That's interesting to me. (laughs) So she gets in his face and she said, if you just come here, he would not have died. You see, she had a framework for healing. She had no paradigm for resurrection. And he looks at her sternly. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So what he does in that moment, he counsels with truth. He counsels with truth. Then the other sister comes. Totally different attitude. Broken in heart. Broken in spirit. Comes to him for comfort She says, if you'd only been here. Same words, totally different spirit. And then the Bible gives us the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Tears. Tears. I've always, that's always blown me away. See, in some ways, what what you have to understand is Jesus always counsels with both truth and tears, because we need both. See, look at, this, look at this statement. Truth without tears is always too harsh. But tears without truth is too sentimental. Come on, get that one. Say it with me, all right? Truth without tears is too harsh. Tears without the truth is too sentimental. I... Always run when somebody comes up to me and says, I have something I need to get off my chest. I say, go get it off somewhere else. (laughs) Or one of my favorite truth statements, I love you, but. That's a big but right there. (laughs) What follows that is not going to be pleasant. But in their mind, they're thinking... I can fix this with truth. They're not Jesus counselors. They're fleshly counselors. Truth without tears is too harsh. Tears without truth. Have you ever been around those who cannot let anyone really express the depth of their emotion or even confess the depth of their sin before they're smothering them? It's all right. 
It's all right. I'm even careful, friends. I'm even careful to give people a handkerchief or to give them a, a Kleenex or something because in some ways you're saying, okay, you've cried enough. I believe in the snot anointing. <laughs> that there's healing when the nose is releasing. <laughs> but most of us are very uncomfortable with others' emotions. So we begin to nurture without truth. We do not let the truth come out. I had a deacon in one church. The Lord had revealed his sin. He had been having an affair with a woman years before. His wife felt like something was wrong. He finally confessed it. Immediately, the leaders in this church began to surround him and say, you don't have to talk about this. You don't have to tell about this. They were uncomfortable. It wasn't about him. It was about them. We're not called, friends, to be fixers or feelers. I don't know how this group divides, but before you leave today, you better realize whether you're a fixer or you're a feeler. People's suffering is not an intellectual puzzle to be solved, nor is it something for you to suppress because you're uncomfortable that they're hurting. It's not about you. This is the amazing thing. When you begin to realize that there's only one, there's only one. Jesus is the only one who can ultimately be a counselor to you in the wilderness. He's the only one who can supernaturally heart change anybody. Why is that? Well, because he is the priest. Listen, think about this with me. The purpose of a priest is to have someone who can bring about the forgiveness of sins. That's the whole purpose of the priest. The priest's job was to bring about the forgiveness of sins, to make oneness again with God, to atone so that the people of God could be aligned with the God of the people. But you and I, sometimes we try to get rid of our own guilt, or we try to get rid of our own shame, or we try to somehow get ourselves to feel better about these things. You have to understand this truth. You cannot forgive your own sins. You can stuff your guilt, you can ignore your shame, but you cannot forgive your own sins. Someone else with authority has to speak over you forgiveness. This is not only spiritual, but psychological. When you suppress, when you deny, when you ignore, all you're doing is pushing deeper down into your soul a greater hardness of heart so that now you have to hide. Guilt and shame make us hide. Make us play like we're people we're not. But see, when someone who has authority says, I forgive you, then the debt is paid and, and the issue is closed. Jesus became the great high priest for you so that you could live in closure, so you didn't have to have ambivalence or ambiguity or uncertainty in your relationship with God. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is, this is the glory of the gospel. I don't have to forgive myself. I've been forgiven by one who has authority to forgive. 
Now, some of you might say, but don't I need to forgive myself because of all the errors and mistakes and disappointments? Of course, but you're not doing it out of your own authority. And you're not lying about your sin. You're getting it up. You're getting it out. Nothing's hidden. The doors are wide open. And he says, I forgive you. The debt is paid. Some people have told me before, I, say, I, just, I, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And I look at him and think, you are the stupidest person I have met. Because if the holy God forgives you, who are you? Because when you do forgive yourself, all you're doing is by faith accepting God's forgiveness of you. But when someone says, I can't forgive myself, then they've got some standard about living or behavior that is greater than God's standard. Like someone says, you know, I just can't forgive myself for my sexual immorality. I can't forgive myself for my, you know, my, my uncleanness and in this area. Well, usually it's because their parents taught them that's the worst sin ever. And so somehow or their church, and they elevated that one sin above all other sins. And so they can see God forgiving, but because they can't get over their sexual, their, their sexual brokenness, they're going, but God couldn't possibly forgive me for that because my parents said that was the worst sin ever. And so what they've done is that by even demonic interference, they have lifted a religious principle above even God's decree. They've given authority to something that should not have authority over them. See, if God says you're forgiven... He's the only one against whom you've actually sinned. And he became, Jesus became a high priest for that purpose. See, the reason that it's not enough to have an earthly priest is because every single priest that ever ministered in the temple was just as sinful as everybody they sacrificed for. So before, yeah, sometimes worse. <laughs> True point, Alan. I wasn't going to say that, but uh, it is a biblical reality. So the problem was that before he could even go sacrifice for you, he had to sacrifice for himself. Friends, you may have wondered sometimes, some of you come from a tradition where they're a priest, or you come from a tradition where people are called priests, and you might wonder, why do we never call ourselves priests? I always crack up when people first come here and they call me Father Mike and then they meet Sister Lisa. And they're so confused. We have lots of pastors. We have a big pastoral staff, but we have one priest here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's he's the only priest who doesn't have to make sacrifice for himself before he makes sacrifice for you. So he doesn't have to do it again and again and again. He could do it one time as the perfect sacrifice so that your sins are truly forgiven. I mean, I'll never, I, I never tire of this fact. That God has now tied your forgiveness to his justice. Because Jesus says to the Father, Father, you will never take two payments for the one payment that I have already made. God is just. He will never ask a second payment. 
when Jesus has already made the payment. And the guarantee that the payment was accepted is the empty tomb and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need no other mediator between you and God. You don't need me. You don't need any of us to mediate between you and God. You have the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He did not do this of his own just choosing. He didn't just say, you know, I'm kind of bored in heaven. I think we'll go to earth for a while. What the writer of Hebrews says is only that one who is appointed of God can do what God has asked him to do. This is an authorized sacrifice. I mean, there are people who try to make sacrifices and say, God will love me if I make this sacrifice. God will approve of me if I make this sacrifice. And God never ordained it. Jesus is the ordained sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing else is necessary. Christ did not exalt himself. He was appointed. But here, here's this interesting thing here. Because though Jesus is the ultimate exhorter, he's the ultimate counselor, he's the wonderful counselor, and yet the call in Hebrews, particularly chapter 3, verse 13, is that you and I counsel each other. That we exhort one another. That we do not allow our fellow travelers... To get by with quitting or giving up or getting hardened or getting cold. We are called to be so much in therapy with Jesus that then we are able to counsel out of his counsel those who are traveling with us. But again, it can't be fleshly counsel. It can't just be a cliche. It can't be a platitude. It has to be the kind of counsel where you have so entered into the world of Jesus that now what you're saying is the very appeal of Jesus to the people. I mean, even in preaching, I mean, it's it's so interesting when I was just a young, I was in my early 20s, and and I heard this thought, and it it was a little overwhelming to me. In Romans 10, it basically says that when the word of God is being proclaimed, Christ is making his appeal through us. So that the words are Christ's words, although it's through my mouth or your mouth. In the same way, as we counsel from his counsel, then that counsel becomes the very appeal of Christ to your fellow travelers. That's why you can't be someone who fakes it till you make it. That's why you can't just say, do as I say, but not as I do. There's no weight in that. That doesn't work in the wilderness. Are you hearing me? So then, how do we understand this incredible counselor that we have? And and what does he offer to us? Well, in chapter 4, as it starts to talk about him as our great high priest, it says he's tempted in every way as we are. So C.S. Lewis wrote this probably during World War II. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it. I guess that's a slight against France, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. See, he's our wounded healer. I have a I have a doctor. You know, as you get older, you got a doctor for every cell of your body. <laughs> and the one doctor can't talk about the other cells, you know. And so I have this one doctor, and he's a, he's a very, very uh, accomplished doctor. I cannot stand talking to him, though, because he won't explain anything. He just got, he, you know, he just, he's real quick with me, and I'm like, 160 bucks for two minutes? What are you talking about? You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> And, so, and he's young, and what I know is he's not been through what I've been through. He knows his stuff, but he doesn't care about me. So he has no time for me. If you've ever been with a doctor who's been on the table like you have, they have a whole different perspective. Jesus is the doctor who has been on the table. And he knows how to enter your world and how to bring you from your world into his world. He went through it all, friends, without sin. You know, I, I want to I just kind of push on this point a little bit. One of the biggest things in life, one of, the, one of the places of tension, one of the places where we struggle, is that feeling like no one enters our world. When, when my son hit uh, 12, 13 years old, he's beginning to be a teenager, I... I got a, a stern talking to by my wife. There was truth without tears. Uh, it, was, it was good truth, but, but it, and I needed it because what was happening is I was talking to my son, and he was nodding his head, but he did not speak at all. It was completely me talking. And I would ask him questions, and there were just, yes, Dad, no, Dad kind of thing. And my wife looked at me and she said, if you do not enter his world, you are going to lose him. He's my son. I love my son. I wasn't talking to him because I hated him. I talking to him because I didn't know what to do. And one of the things I started to realize is my son does not respond to my style of communication. I am very direct. Not that you notice. I am very... <laughs> I'm very blunt. I'm really, I like to be in your face and I want you to, you know, like challenge you and all. And none of that worked with Joseph whatsoever. So I had to completely learn a new language just to speak to him. It was open ended questions just so I could enter into his world. So I remember trying it out and I went, Son, what do you think is the best electric guitar? And he would talk for an hour on Gibsons and Fenders and, and Rickenbackers and every kind of thing. And he would just begin to talk. And it would just be this open thing. I'd say, well, tell me about punk music. Oh, Dad, he'd say. You know, and he'd go, he'd go on and talk about this music and all of this stuff. 
And it was me entering his world. Well, when he grew up, he moved to Brooklyn. He came over here to church one day. And usually what would happen is we'd have lunch together, and then I'd take him to the train because it was a long drive over to Brooklyn on Sunday afternoons. And so we're driving across the Tappan Zee Bridge, and my son looks at me and said, Dad, what do you think about spiritual gifts? I went, I'm driving you to Brooklyn today. <laughs> and it was one of those Sundays where it was three hours over there and three hours back, you know. And, and all the way, we're just talking and talking because in many ways, I think for so many years, I had entered his world that he then felt safe enough to enter my world and to ask me a question about my world. And then we met together. Here's the thing. Whether you know it or not, for your whole life, Jesus has been entering your world. But he does not want you to stay in the wilderness without provision. So you have to also begin to enter his world so that you can begin to understand, how do I overcome? How do I finish well? How do I go all the way to the end? Because no one else has been able to do that but Jesus. You need him as your counselor. Tim Keller uh, wrote a book on this that was really meaningful to me. And this is a little quote from there. He says, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? Yet he goes around crying all the time. He is always weeping, a man of sorrows. Do you know why? Because he is perfect. Because when you are not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the Lord happens inside the sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. The weeping drives you into the joy. It enhances the joy, and then the joy enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. In other words, you are finally emotionally healthy. Such an amazing thing. See, what I mean, there's so many things that this means, but, but a couple of them that I'd like you to think about is this. As long as you are lying and denying reality, you will not be healed in the wilderness. For example, today I have a cold. I have raspy voice. I probably am getting close to laryngitis. So I could go, I'm not sick. In Jesus' name, I'm not sick. I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. <laughs> and I'd be denying reality. And I'd be focusing on the wrong thing. It's not wrong for me to want to be healed. It's not wrong for me to believe that I will be healed. But if all I'm doing is focusing on my healing, I'm just being sad that I'm not healed. But if I focus that the healing is not The ultimate thing. It's the healer that is my ultimate thing. And I focus on the presence of the Lord, which the joy of the Lord is my strength. And his joy begins to invade the grief. His joy invades the sickness. What you find quite often is the cold goes away and you don't even notice it. Because the cold isn't ultimate. And you can can be sad is what this is saying. You can't live in the wilderness and not be sad. If for no other reason than to see what others are going through. 
But in the midst of that, he says, my joy is, my, is his presence. I mean, the, the writer of the Psalms knew what it was to be in the wilderness, and yet he said, your presence, in your presence, is the fullness of joy. He didn't just say, in your presence, when I'm really healthy and I got a promotion and everything's going well in my, my marriage and when uh, you know, I know that my retirement funds are good and all of this stuff, he said, in your presence, just that is the fullness of joy. He wasn't denying sorrow. He wasn't denying the sadness. But he was saying that here's what, here's what the real follower of Jesus starts to get. He is my ultimate. And if I have him and he's my treasure, then whatever else happens in the wilderness cannot take away my treasure. But if other things in the wilderness are my treasure, then that can be tweaked at any time. And touched at any time. Are you hearing me? I listened to a, a broadcast yesterday. I, I love to listen to this thing called the Moth Story Hour. And uh, the, I just love to listen to storytellers. And there was this guy, he was a bass player for uh, Guns N' Roses. I used to really like listening to Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Always wished I had that kind of lead singer voice for a heavy metal band. But... Uh, I also wish I could grow my hair long, but it just gets big. <laughs> so I was listening because, I, you know, this guy was from Guns N' Roses, and he starts to tell his story, and he was in a really strong drug culture. And, uh, I mean, he was, you know, traveling with Kurt Cobain and all these other guys, and he actually said he was on the plane with Kurt Cobain two days before Kurt Cobain OD'd. And numerous other ones that he was friends with were all ODing on drugs. And he himself was incredibly addicted to heroin. And he woke up, he tells the story, he woke up in incredibly intense pain and he knew he was dying. Somehow, um, one of his friends found him, got him to the emergency room, and they found out that his, his uh, pancreas had bloated up and exploded. And, and toxics the toxic stuff from the pancreas had burned all the organs in his abdomen. So he just kept, he kept saying to his friends, just kill me, kill me. He was in so much pain. And because he had done so many drugs, morphine didn't touch it. You know, no, no painkiller was even helping with the pain. And he tells this really interesting story how he healed. I mean, it sounds like something that couldn't even possibly heal. And yet his pancreas healed. Uh, self-healed. And the doctor looked at him and said, man, you need to find out the reason for this because you've been given a second chance. So I kept going, is there going to be a big, huge point to this at the end? There wasn't. He never really found, I mean, if you listen to it, he kind of got his life back on track. He got married. He had a kid, all this but he's still in the wilderness. His sins are still not forgiven. His guilt is not taken away. His shame is not gone. And he's still wrestling in the wilderness, though he's had a touch from God to heal his body. But he knows not the God who healed him. <laughs> I was so depressed after I listened to this thing <laughs> that I needed this sermon. I mean, 
because it was so sad. Because the love of God, the, the counseling of Jesus is reaching out to every hard heart and reaching out to every lost person. I mean, this is the day that you reach out and say, I can't live in the wilderness without the wonderful counselor. I need you in my life. There's an old-fashioned term that we, we used always when I was a kid, and it was, a, are you saved, they used to say. And some of you might not know what that means, but it's still a beautiful idea. Will you let Jesus save you from the wilderness? Will you let him save you from purposelessness? Will you let him save you from meaninglessness? Because, friends, if this life is all that there is, then suffering is meaningless. But if this life is the wilderness waiting to take us home, then nothing is wasted and no sorrow is wasted. And he even redeems the pain and makes it not only glorious for his purposes, but glorious in your life as well. He loves to make scars beautiful. Will you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to do two things as we close out. Um, there's an old practice that I like where you stretch out your hand and you have your palms down. It's just kind of a prophetic act. I'm going to speak just as softly as I can on this, but there's some of you, your heart is hard today. I mean, you're, you're struggling. You've got doubt, you've got cynicism, skepticism, some disillusionment. Things haven't worked out like you wanted them to. You don't know what the future holds. The reason your palm is down is to let go and to, to cast aside and to let fall to the ground. What I'm saying to you is there's a counselor who has entered into your sorrow, entered into your disappointment, He's not afraid of it. He's not even afraid of your doubt, your fear, your disillusionment. He knows all about it. He enters into it, but he doesn't enter into it so you both stay there. He enters into it so that home becomes an experience even in the wilderness. I'm going to ask you. I, I can't make you. I'm just trying to ask you, though. Would you let it go? Because it's not really protecting you. Let go of your doubt. Say, Lord, I trust you. Let go of your fear. Say, Lord, I follow you. Even if I can't see the way, I'm going to hold your hand. Lord, I'm not going to let cynicism or skepticism be the guard of my heart. You're the guard of my heart. You're my portion forever. If you feel like you, you can do that, where you just let those things go, then just turn your palm over and let it. Let your heart, now soften, now tender, receive from him the help that you need in the times of trouble, the help that you need for the future that you long for, the help that you need for the desires that are deepest in your heart. In the wilderness, no one else can fill you 
like Jesus. I love my family, but they can't fill me. I love my marriage, but it can't fill me. I need to, the truth is, I have to come to my marriage filled. I have to come to my family filled. Now I want to ask, there's a second thing I want to ask. Will you take up the call? Will you take up the call to be the counselors? To be people who are truth with tears and tears with truth. That you're not fixers, you're not feelers, you're the very appeal of Christ to fellow travelers. You want to say that out loud? I'm not a fixer, not a feeler. But I am the appeal of Christ to my fellow travelers. Sometimes the only way people ever hear Jesus speak is through you. So you go from your counseling session to counseling others. Lord, we see what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.